welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow currently living in Boston. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guests and ask questions. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Today, our case is from a new friend of febrile, Dr. Kajal Vishnani, who is an adult hospitalist in North Carolina who loves ID. And now I'm going to introduce today's guest. Dr. Ruvandi Nathafitharana. Ruvandi is an attending physician in infectious diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Ruvandi's clinical efforts are focused on the longitudinal, multidisciplinary care of patients with TB and non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and her research interests center around the use of implementation science to evaluate TB diagnostic algorithms and interventions to decrease TB transmission in high TB incidence countries. She has a focus on Peru and South Africa and is funded by an NIH K23 Career Development Award and the ASTMH Burroughs Welcome Fellowship. Ruvandi has also served as a technical expert analyzing data to inform WHO guideline group panel recommendations on the use of line probe assays and the urine lamb test for the diagnosis of TB. Ruvandi is also the chair of TB Proof, an advocacy organization based in South Africa that seeks to destigmatize TB and mobilize national and global resources to end TB. Welcome to the show, Ruvandi. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here with you. <laughs> Um, as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we like to kick off the show and ask you to share a little piece of culture that brings you happiness. Oh, so I was thinking about this, which is tr a tricky one <laughs> to choose something. So I think reading is something actually that recently has brought me great joy. I usually love traveling, but these days, not so able to do that. So reading, I think, yeah. takes you to a sphere beyond our current limited radius. And so the book I just finished reading is called Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Um, and it's a book about these 12 um, interconnected um, black women living in the UK at different different times and kind of gets at the intersections between identities and is really fascinating story woven uh, together. And then in the spirit of ID and culture, one thing that I'm always fascinated by is trying to see uh, TB um, across literature, music, arts, yeah. um, writing, etc. Um, because so many people have had TB in the past and thinking about ways to get it into the public sphere um, yeah. and get people engaged. I'll have to add that. Yeah, I've, I've refreshed my... Uh, number of library trips now and have been just like constantly reserving books whenever I hear about a new one. So I'm going to add that one to my list. Oh, yeah, it's really interesting. Inter no yeah. punctuation, which is a little strange at the beginning um, to kind of read a book uh. without punctuation. But I think actually I warmed to that concept. Oh, cool. Um, all right. So we have a case for you today. Our consult is a request to help with working up a patient with COPD and ulcerative colitis who has weight loss and cough. Um, so we have a 61-year-old female. She has a history of COPD and ulcerative colitis on infliximab, and she's had 
a couple months, about four months of cough, shortness of breath and weight loss. And she had been tolerating it for the first couple months and didn't think too much of it. But over the past couple weeks, um, she's had uh, a significant increase in her cough. And she's kind of looking back, realized that she's probably lost 20 pounds kind of unintentionally over this time span of a couple months. When you ask about her cough, it is mostly dry. She's had no hemoptysis throughout this. And she says she hasn't had a fever, but she does mention that sometimes in the morning she wakes up and has noticed that she has had a lot of sweats and like drenched through her clothes. And so that's new over this couple month time time span. She has had some diarrhea and abdominal pain that is maybe a little bit above baseline for her ulcerative colitis. But other than that, nothing else that she has noticed. And so I mentioned her history of COPD and ulcerative colitis. She's been on infliximab for several years now and has been stable without any issues. She's never fortunately needed any surgery related to her bowel disease. And I'll give you sort of just a mini intro to her social history. Uh, She currently lives in Colorado. She lives uh, by herself in sort of a cabin in a wooded area. And she used to be an elementary school teacher and is retired now and really likes to go hiking and swimming and some of the nearby lakes. She traveled to Hawaii a couple weeks ago, about three weeks. And then her only international travel is that she went to Jamaica about four months ago before she started having symptoms. For dietary history, the only thing she mentions is that she does like to eat raw oysters, but nothing else um, that stood out when we were talking to her. And then she smoked in her teens and 20s and has not smoked since that time. No drug use and drinks about a glass of wine every couple weeks. Um, So I wanted to see what's going through your mind now um, as you put together the case and and formulate what questions you want to ask next. Okay, thank you. So let me um, just summarize. Can you remind me how how old she is? 61. 61. So 61-year-old woman with COPD, uh, uh, 61-year-old ex-smoking woman um, with COPD and ulcerative colitis uh, currently on infliximab presenting with weight loss and a dry cough um, for about four months and significant weight loss of 20 pounds with sweats um, and um, without fevers and also with diarrhea and abdominal pain, um, which we think is separate to her uh, inflammatory bowel disease um so i guess and and then the other thing i would try and factor into that is the fact is is in terms of her exposures so we know she lives in colorado we know she's in, immunocompromised on the anti-tnf agent she lives in a wooded area um not a lot of travel um she's been to hawaii and jamaica in terms of outside of the, the country is limited um and then oysters um so so i guess the question is 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 whether is trying to come up with an overarching diagnosis and so things that i would want to um know about so one thing i would think about in people who are on anti-tnf um agents is is their risk of tuberculosis there's nothing obvious that comes to mind um from what you've described in she's she's um living in the u.s she is on infliximab but she hasn't sort of traveled or lived as far as we know in any high tb incident settings um don't know what she does for work um you know whether she's a health worker for example that would increase that risk um but nothing obvious that that comes to mind in terms of her TB risk factors, but it's always possible. Um, 
another um another you know link to that is is ntm infections which is a lot of what what i see in my in my clinic give which fits with the fact that she has a cough profound weight loss um and potentially the the diarrhea and abdominal pain it's hard to know if that is all one connected infectious syndrome but does make you wonder about the possibility of disseminated um mycobacterial infection in someone who is immunocompromised so that would that would be something that would cross my mind as well and then i guess i would also think about um um other syndromes um i might think about I guess Colorado, um, other diagnoses like coxie that might come up that could cause pulmonary syndromes, um, maybe GI syndromes as, as well. Other, I think about fungal um, infections as well. Um, not so common, I think, to see things like aspergillus, but it could cause dry cough, weight loss, um, and abdominal symptoms potentially uh, as well. You mentioned the oysters, but I don't know if that is a red herring. So maybe think of Vibrio, <laughs> but I wouldn't really explain her pulmonary findings. I think you could certainly explain her diarrhea and um, abdominal pain. So I think I would want to get a bit more history, and then I'd be thinking kind of broadly about what kinds of specimens to get in terms of um, cultures um, and diagnostic other serologic or other diagnostic tests. Yeah. And I didn't throw in a pet that I named this time. <laughs> um, I did intentionally leave out the questions about uh, yes. TB exposure. So she, uh, we do know she's had negative quantifiron tests prior to starting her infliximab and has no known TB contacts or risk factors. Um, and worked as a school teacher before, so didn't really have any occupational reason to have been um, exposed to TB. Um, so I thought what I could do is tell you a little bit just about how she looks as well, because since she's here mm -hmm. in clinic. Um, One quick question I forgot to oh, ask yeah. is, has she, been on, has she had a lot of steroid exposure? Um, because the other thing I was thinking about with yeah. cough, maybe less the weight loss with something like PJP um, that, that might also happen in this host. Yeah, it's it sounds like she's not had steroids in a few years because she's actually been pretty well controlled. Okay. Um, so she's doing pretty well considering that. Um, and so in in the office, she does have a temperature of one hundred point eight Fahrenheit, um, and heart rate was a little over a hundred, kind of in association with the elevated temp. Um, her respiratory rate is twenty two, and she's sitting right at about. 90% uh, on room air. Um, she's thin and has a BMI of about 20. And you do appreciate diffuse crackles on her lung exam. Nothing that is necessarily focal. Um, and then no murmur. She was slightly tachycardic, like I mentioned. And then um, she had some mild right upper quadrant tenderness, but her exam overall, no guarding and nothing that was concerning. In addition, she has no rash and no lymphadenopathy. Um, and so around this time, she had also gotten some labs at her primary care doctor, so you're able to check those out. So on her CBC, her white blood cell count is 2.1. Her hemoglobin is about 10, and her platelets are about 91. Her chemistry is normal as far as her creatinine. And then for her LFT, she does have a... AST of about 100 and an ALT also of about 100. Um, her ALKFOS is 213. Her GGT, which you happen to have, is about 190. She has a normal bilirubin um, and her albumin is 2.7. We know that she's HIV negative. Um, she also is HEP B immune and HEP A and HEP C negative. 
Um, and so she did have an initial chest X-ray that shows some nodular opacities and maybe some bronchiectasis, no um, changes in the apices that are necessarily pointing to prior TB. Um, but she did have a follow-up CT chest, and this showed multifocal bronchiectasis. She does have numerous sort of bilateral randomly distributed nodules, a few areas of tree and bud inflammation, and some associated mediastinal lymphadenopathy. So no major cavitary lesions at this time. Um, but I thought I would see how you would proceed now and what you think of these imaging findings, if that helps you um, move things up or down the list. Yes, um, thank you. I guess one thing that I think um, is really important, especially when you're seeing um, this type of patient in clinic, is to try to understand what has, how much things have changed. And this relates to her clinical exam before and also her imaging findings. So I think it's really helpful to know, for example, I guess, to start with her clinical exam, um, her SATs of 90% may be within the normal range for someone with COPD, but obviously in someone without COPD, we consider that hypoxia. And so um, I I would want to know is this an acute change, is this subacute, um, or is this what her kind of chronic baseline is in terms of kind of gauging how sick this person is? And it helps, I think, when I'm trying to make a decision about um, how um, how sick the person is and whether that warrants any immediate treatment as you're kind of getting this work up. Um, because otherwise, her respiratory is a little bit on the high side, but other and her heart rate also, um, but not to the point where I think she's you know ill enough potentially to warrant admission for example but if if she was newly hypoxic that might kind of prompt me down that way but I think um, that's maybe not um, not the case for this patient and then in terms of the imaging so it's very helpful I think that she has a CT in addition to the chest x-ray um, but one thing I would definitely ask about is trying to compare that if she's had other imaging before because it's really helpful to understand you know, even if that was remote if this is something that has been kind of gradually developing over time because you know as the as an ID specialist when you see people with bronchiectasis what's really challenging especially when you're trying to explain this to patients you know you can explain that bronchiectasis is this structural widening of the airways and this can predispose you to infections and sometimes this can be idiopathic we don't know how it's arisen and sometimes infections can cause this and then you kind of get this self-perpetuating um, cycle between these two two disorders um, and so I think that the the findings of bronchiectasis with nodules and tree and bud changes I think they definitely push mycobacterial infections up the list to the to the top really um, so I think that Based on what you've sort of said in terms of her being a, a teacher without a lot of travel or other previous potential TB exposures, it, it makes non-tuberculous mycobacteria uh, more likely than, than TB. I think it doesn't completely exclude TB. So part of your workup would be um, sputum AFB smear and cultures, which would also tell you if, if someone has TB and you'd also do a nucleic acid amplification test. An expert um, MTB RIF is the one that we have available in, in the US. Um, and then the other thing I would, would say is that based on her diarrhea and abdominal pain, this is someone who I would also, and, and also based on her liver function tests, someone who I'd also want additional imaging to, to look at their abdomen and pelvis, particularly to look at the, the liver and other parts of the GI tract, including the colon, to see if she has a colitis or other explanations for these abnormal blood tests. Um, similarly, things I'd want to kind of know from a PCP or any other specialist involved in her care, is she newly thrombocytopenic, leukopenic, um, maybe in the context of her autoimmune 
disease. But those would be some of the things I'd be thinking about. But mycobacterial infection would, would probably be at the top of my list. Yeah. Um, and so at this time, she, you know, she is still outpatient, is able to work on getting some sputum samples submitted. Um, she does around this time, I will say, have other workup that has essentially all come back negative, including um, CMV, PCR, uh, crypt- cryptococcal antigen, urine histoplasma antigen, coxy serologies, um, and fungal markers, which are negative. Um, and she is arranged to have an MRCP to follow up on these elevated transaminases. Um, and so there are some changes that have been suggested of primary sclerosing cholangitis, but nothing um, that was new. And it it turns out when you look back, she's had some elevation in the LFTs before, um, but the hypoxia from what we can tell is a relatively new thing for her. Um, and so these induced sputum cultures that were arranged, your gram stain, bacterial, fungal, legionella cultures are negative, um, but two of the three are AFB smear positive, and then her MTB NAT comes back negative. Um, and I'm obviously speeding this up a lot, but um, those cultures that were the two that were smear positive did grow mycobacterium avium. And so I wanted to stop here to talk about the diagnosis of NTM pulmonary disease so the listeners have a good baseline before we even get to treatment, because I think that is the biggest challenge is who really has disease, and you have to answer that to know whether or not they need to be treated. Um, So I thought you would be the great person to walk us through. And I think one of the questions, too, is what if that patient had one, just one culture that was positive, and how does that inform your decision? Yes, excellent questions. Um, and I like the sped up timeline, but I think it's definitely <laughs> worth emphasizing. It's more satisfying than real life. <laughs> most definitely. You know, unfortunately, we don't have a, you know, expert equivalent for um, for NTM infections. And that's a real gap in, I think, our diagnostic armamentarium. So I think, we, you know, we can say we think this person doesn't have TB, but when the smear is positive, we think, you know, this is consistent with NTM disease um, in the lungs. Um, but we don't know a species until it grows. And, you know, we have a slow grower like like the MAC complex, so mycobacterium avium chimera and intracellular in that. And, you know, you may be, you know, between two and up to eight weeks um, before you actually know um, that AFB is growing in the culture and then gets identified, um, you know, usually, I think, within a few days, but sometimes can take time. Um, and so this is, I think, important to be able to convey to patients because it's very atypical because they're sort of more used to understanding, oh, there's bacteria there, therefore we need to treat it. Why don't you know what to treat me with, for example. And then you have to kind of go through the additional complex step of explaining to patients that this doesn't necessarily mean disease. Um, So, you know, for example, so I often will will discuss with patients, I'll say that unlike regular bacteria, um, where, you know, you know you need to treat for a pneumonia for X number of days um, with, you know, these antibiotics that are likely to be effective. We um, have the the species type, and so we have some idea about which antibiotics will be effective. But um, it's worth kind of explaining to to patients, although 
we will obviously discuss treatment a little bit later, but as part of that initial discussion that because treatment for NTM infections requires multiple antibiotics for multiple months, um, uh, it's not as, as straightforward a decision. And I also often compare it to TB because sometimes in there, you know, during part of their workup, they will have had someone say something about TB and explain that it's not TB. Um, these are not typically contagious to other other people and but um, and they have some similarities with TB that they're in the same family and I think trying to explain that clearly to patients is challenging but really really important so that they understand um, but I think in, as a clinician I think what you have to really understand is does this person have NTM disease that warrants treatment and that basically um, you kind of come to that as a constellation of symptoms the sort of clinical piece which is their symptoms and their clinical presentation their imaging fits into that kind of clinical books and then the microbiology and so based on their NTM guidelines which were newly updated last year in 2020 um, uh, based on those guidelines what's recommended is so for the microbiologic piece so this this woman I guess to, let's go with um, what you, you had said that she is smear positive and she's growing in two cultures so that's actually an easier uh, on the mic <laughs> that fits the microbiologic diagnosis yeah. because you have two sputum specimens that are growing hopefully the same species and will come to different species um, in a single patient set, um, subsequently but um, so that meets the microbiologic criteria. To, so two sputum cultures that are growing uh, NTM, the, the same NTM. The other option is is to have one um, BAL specimen from a bronchoscopy that is is positive. Um, and sometimes you'll also factor in if you have maybe one microbiologic specimen, but also pathology. You sometimes we see patients who have had biopsies that show granuloma, and that together I think adds adds enough weight with a single culture. Um, and then the clinical symptoms. So what you described in, in this woman, the dry cough. Um, and and sweats and weight loss that certainly fits a clinical syndrome of um, of pulmonary MAC. But one thing I'll say that is is challenging in patients with comorbidities like this woman um, is when you have COPD, your dry cough may be because of your COPD and could you be having a COPD flare, for example? Sometimes weight loss can also go with these chronic um, pulmonary disease syndromes that are not necessarily infectious. So sometimes it can be very hard to tease out are there symptoms because of infection or not? Although I think on balance, this, this woman is probably having symptoms that are uh, separate from her COPD and her ulcerative colitis. Um, and then the imaging findings I think are helpful because they're very, they are definitely characteristic of NTM disease. But one thing that I will say is just having imaging findings of NTM consistent with pulmonary NTM disease doesn't necessarily necessitate, necessitate treatment. But I think the longitudinal assessment is really important. So I will try and um, I'll always go back and look and see if they've had previous imaging that suggests, especially if this is progressing, then that's going to kind of prompt me more down the pathway of offering patient treatment to this patient than if things are, are very stable um, and they don't you know maybe are minimally symptomatic so the question about one culture is an important one because because no I wouldn't necessarily treat someone who has one culture that's that's positive um, potentially even with with symptoms and some imaging findings so some of it is really um, this kind of global assessment of the patient and um, and really doing so over time to really try to understand is this NTM a colonizer of their airway and someone with structurally abnormal lungs versus cause truly causing disease and that is not straightforward yeah um okay so we've decided this patient everything put together that we would like to talk about treatment um and so i before we jump into the medications i wanted to ask if the species of mycobacterium matter in terms of likelihood of curing their disease 
Yes. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. It's a really important one because I think being um, able to be as clear as we can with, unfortunately, as I think you are aware, um, limited data to really guide these um, assertions or this decision making that we're making with the with patients. Um, it's really important for them to understand this. And so the species does matter. So, for example, so so in, in the U.S. context, the the NTM that cause pulmonary disease. So I guess for the moment we'll ignore her GI symptoms for now. Um, but for if we think about pulmonary um, um, disease. The most common species would be um, in the MAC complex, so MAVM, intracellular and Chimera. In terms of those um, species within the MAC complex, um, there are some differences that I think are not really uh, truly well understood in terms of the likelihood of recurrence. So, for example, um, there are some there's some data that show, suggests that M intracellulare may be more um, pathogenic than Avium and then Chimera, but that M Chimera and M, M, M Avium may be more likely to recur, but I think those are, that's not based on kind of um, strong sort of large uh, data sets. So I think there's not too much that we can say in terms of those um, subspecies. But I think what we can say to patients is that um, is that overall MAC cure rates are between 60 to 80 percent. So it's much lower than we would want, certainly than lower than for drug sensitive TB. And then other species that we would, would see um, commonly are M. Kansasii, which has much better cure rates. And, and that actually the new guidelines actually is one of the um, major changes in the guidelines where they actually say that you can give a fixed duration of 12 months that it's not necessarily predicated on culture conversion because we know that it's easier to cure with um, first line um, treatment and then M abscessus is the other is the third that we see which is which is more challenging because it's a intrinsically drug resistant organism um, and so that is much harder to, to cure and the cure rate really there depends on the subspecies of M abscessus that you have so if you have M abscessus abscessus subspecies abscessus that is much harder to cure than M abscessus um, subspecies mycelians because mycelians tends to be macrolides is typically macrolide susceptible and that or goes a better prognosis and so there I think it's very is very helpful to know uh, certainly the species and, and the subspecies where possible the challenges is that we often don't we don't always most clinicians will not necessarily have access to that information but I'm hoping that you know over the next you know years of our practice that that will become more routine for us to have that and then for us also um, on the scientific side to be kind of gathering better data about that yeah and my Something I feel like I've learned from you is that we also don't entirely understand the significance of when patients have more than one strain, right? And like what what that means and how should that change things? Yes, that's a really important question that I think we we I think I think part of the you know one issue is is that we often don't know because we don't test for it um, yeah. because we you know getting sputum cultures regularly on patients is quite challenging partly because you know we don't necessarily see them often enough to be able to do it and then also because patients like this this woman with COPD and a dry cough may not always be able to produce sputum so you may need to do sputum induction um, and and some people are hopefully able to expectorate um, and so so not so one challenge is, is a measurement issue that we're probably underestimating mixed infections. Um, but the the significance is is not is not really clear, and actually, um, I think it depends. So some of it, I think, when you detect more than one species, for example, um, what you have to try to figure out is if there is truly a co-infection that requires treatment of both species at the same time, which I have done, but it's not not common. Um, or whether one may be a colonizer. So then you have to try, and really the only way you can do that is with serial sputum cultures to try to figure out which is the dominant one, because it also may be that 
you, it may be that you treat you know the what you think is the primary cause of infection first and then consider for example say you in this lady we grow M M um, avium, for example, and then she has one spe one specimen that grows M abscessus. If she doesn't have further specimens that grows M abscessus, you probably would focus on the M avium, treat that, and then kind of follow her up and see whether you know, she pretend, whether she develops M abscessus infection that requires treatment. Because to treat both together, it's easier to treat Kensesia and um, and 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 one of the Mac um, species because you uh, you know there's overlap. Between between the drugs, but with them abscesses, it's much less predictable drug susceptibility patterns. And also, but easier said than done, as always, for these patients, because <laughs> yeah. it's not us that has to take all these complex, you know, whether it's three yeah. antibiotics versus five antibiotics makes a massive difference to patients. Yeah. Um, and I am intentionally not talking about MFSS's treatment today. We went with MAC, which is uh, in the relative <laughs> spectrum is, is a little bit more straightforward. So Walk us through what what do we need to treat, for example, this patient um, who has really nodular disease but not cavitary disease. Yes. Um, so, so, so that's a key distinction that you made already. So, to try to understand the extent of disease, um, and so cavitary disease, um, um, the guidelines recommend the use of intravenous aminoglycosides in addition to first-line treatment. And first-line treatment is amacrolide. Um, now, the guidelines, actually, the new guidelines, uh, strongly recommend azithromycin over clarithromycin as the macrolide of choice for various reasons that include a daily dosing compared to twice daily, better tissue penetration, less side effects less drug interactions um, and less metabolism by the rifamycin. So, so, the, so the first line treatment would really be azithromycin, rifampin and ethambutol. Um, and then if you had cavitary disease, you'd add IV aminoglycoside or in people who couldn't get IV aminoglycoside, for example, with baseline hearing loss, you would probably try to do inhaled aminoglycoside in that, in that group. The next question that you have, and we're going to ignore for a moment this this woman's um, raised LFTs, which you know we're going to have to think yeah. about for this, this patient specifically. <laughs> but um, when you're thinking about the you know the macrolide rifamycin ethambutol regimen, one of the next questions is, is daily therapy versus intermittent therapy. And so there are data. I wouldn't say it's not high quality, um, large scale randomized controlled trials. Um, unfortunately, that that. But the retrospective studies do suggest that um, intermittent therapy may be non-inferior to daily treatment. But um, I think in someone, especially someone who's immunocompromised like this, who has a relatively, from what you described, relatively severe burden of disease based on her clinical symptoms, you know, manifested by her 20 pounds weight, weight loss, numerous nodules, fairly extensive multifocal bronchiectasis. You know, this is not someone who has just a single lobe of one of the lungs that is affected. Um, and then her tree and bud changes. I think I would probably do daily dosing for this this patient. Um, it's also more forgiving in terms of missed doses, and it's something you can think about scaling back to intermittent therapy if someone's not tolerating it. Um, so I think in this person, I would be concerned, and particularly since I'm also still concerned about the possibility that she has disseminated disease. And that's the other thing that's worth mentioning. Um, with with this vignette in mind, um, is that someone with disseminated disease who is on the sicker side, which I think this woman probably is. Um, I'm. I would also think about aminoglycoside in her, even without cavitary disease, if I thought she had a MAC in the GI tract as well. So um, that would be how I would think about the regimen. I would say that um, one thing that I um, always do for patients is to request drug susceptibility testing. And so, you know, the evidence base for drug susceptibility 
testing is, is not strong. You know, the, the, the greatest evidence is to show that macrolide susceptibility has a better likelihood of a higher likelihood of cure. And there's also data on aminoglycoside susceptibility as well. But the reason I get it is because because um, patients on MAC treatment, you know, three antibiotics for at least 12 months because the guideline recommendation is 12 months of negative cultures. So that's, you know, from the time they convert their cultures. So that's often more than than 12 months. Um, and as you can imagine, um, especially people who have some baseline ab- abnormal liver disease, for example, um, may not... And, and for other reasons may not tolerate their first line treatment. So it's helpful to get the drug susceptibility testing to know what other options you might have in your armamentarium to treat them with. And I think the macrolide um, susceptibility is an important piece in terms of being able to discuss the likelihood of cure with with patients. Yeah. Um, And this is kind of a general question, but I, I think that we know that these medications are very tough. And I thought I would just ask, how do you think patients do with these regimens? What are things that you've used to approach when patients have intolerances? Because that is also very challenging. Once you get to the point where you're on treatment, um, keeping them in a place where they can continue the medication is tough. Yeah, this is a really important question and it's not straightforward. And I guess probably the most important thing actually is partnership with the patient, but hopefully yeah. also your friendly outpatient farm D. So we're very fortunate <laughs> to have Monica Mahoney um, uh, because Dr. Mahoney is an amazing source of, <laughs> shout of, out of to knowledge Monica. and guidance. Massive shout out to, to Monica. Um, because, you know, I think that they can really help you and the patients navigate this together. So things that, that Monica and I have done for... For patients is to think about, for example, with the macrolide, some patients do better with um, twice daily dosing, even though, um, you, you know, you would think that one of the advantages is single daily dosing, but the you know 500 milligrams of azithromycin can really make people feel quite nauseous, cause diarrhea, and so some people do better with with split dosing, for example. Um, another thing I'll say that in terms of I guess going back a step in terms of how you introduce um, um, their antibiotics to patients, there's not I think a clear standard. For, I think different people have different standards of practice on this. Um, with some patients, I don't do this for everyone, but um, with with I think probably with more patients now. I'm doing staggered introduction of the medications so that they can sort of start one medication for a few days, get used to it, see if they have any side effects, then introduce another one and then introduce the third um, with, you know, days in between to try to give their, you know, bodies a bit of time to adjust to it and for to identify if you're having side effects, which drug do we think it's most likely to be? Because that's, you know, in the longer term in terms of their care, tricky to pinpoint which drug is likely to be causing side effects. So I think a lot of it is really good counseling with patients to kind of warn them about what is like, what, you know, what may happen um, and then making sure that they, um, you know, feel comfortable to communicate this with you and then trying to troubleshoot with you um, and then thinking about what, you know, what other options there may be. So for example, clofazamine is a drug that, you know, we um, doesn't have FDA approval now um, that we have to get through the Novartis um, expanded access program. And that is a really, you know, pretty well tolerated alternative to the rifamycin, for example. So in someone, for example, that you can't use a rifamycin because of drug interactions or because of liver disease, that might be something I would, would think would think about even at the beginning of treatment versus something that you might switch out to later in treatment if someone's not tolerating a rifamycin. The other the other thing I would do typically before switching um, rifampin to to uh, clofazamine is is to switch to rifabutin. But um, but I'll say that what is 
challenging I've seen is that um, you can't always predict the toxicity. So, so someone, so for example, I had someone with headaches on rifampin, um, and she um, uh, was switched to rifabutin, thinking that might be better in terms of the headaches, but developed quite significant liver toxicity with it, which thankfully recovered well. Um, but um, but it's really a kind of a real juggling act to, to get kind of balance this with the patients and hopefully with assistance from a um, a PharmD expert is can really help you. And for the patients that you have on IV amikacin therapy, let's say they have cavitary disease, logistically, how do you do that? Are these patients enrolled in OPAT? Um, are you checking weekly labs? You space them out along the way? Yes. Um, so, so yes to OPAT. So we do, you know, Beth Israel, we do enroll them in our OPAT program and set them up with them. So we are, you know, fortunate to be able to generally get coverage for home infusion services and for patients to have a pick line. That is, you know, not always the case, um, you know, even within the US. And, you know, that poses major challenges in terms of people having to get intramuscular injections, which are which are really painful. Um, and, and you limit the options in terms of the aminoglycosides that are available. So we... Um, uh, always use amikacin IV uh, via a PICC line given three times a week, um, usually dose 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram. And yes, we do weekly labs um, to check the kidney function in particular, um, but also we do um, peaks and troughs. And that's that's tricky because sometimes the VNAs is not a typical lab that they will do. So you have to kind of explain, you know, in terms of doing the the peak and trough 30 minutes before and after the the dose of getting those timings right is really important for you to then be able to interpret whether they um, are accurate or not and so so having the patient engaged in this is important too because they can also then say to the VNA oh actually you're supposed to do this one before or this one this number of minutes after the infusion so it's certainly not easy but it can be done and then the other piece of that with aminoglycosides is um, the importance of um, monitoring for ototoxicity and so especially you know with the covid pandemic trying to make sure that people get audiograms in a timely way has not been easy but it is really important um, to, to counsel patients about this risk but also to be able to do the necessary monitoring and then for other drugs for example azithromycin clofazamine that can affect the qtc having period periodic ekg monitoring is important so there's a lot of things to, to juggle yeah um and you kind of talked a little bit about sort of how how long to treat and what informs our treatment duration and this kind of general rule of at least for mac 12 months after culture conversion um so i thought we could end by talking about things outside of our um therapy. So surgery, and if there's any other things that are not related to their antibiotics that we can do to sort of optimize their health. Um, so I'll start with surgery and ask, like, who are the patients that have NTM disease that would benefit from surgery? Do we know the answer to that question? Uh, like most things with NTM, I think we, <laughs> we, we don't, we know, I think we know for certain patients that um, there's, I think there's certain groups of patients that, that are likely to benefit from surgery. So for example, people who have disease that is localized to a sink, I think, so I guess, so I guess what I'll say is I have wondered in recent uh, years about whether we should be doing surgery more often recognizing the you know the poor cure rates you know 60 to 80 percent means that a lot of people you know up to a, a third or more um can have recurrence and you know this is after being on antibiotic therapy for 12 months so i have wondered about whether there should be an increased role for surgery but generally surgery is not considered a first-line approach it's considered in people who are you know unable to take medical treatment or refractory to medical 
therapy. And so surgery, I think, works best in people where there is um, localized disease. So ideally, what you know, where there's a, a you could do a segmentectomy or a lobectomy. Um, you know, I have had patients who have needed a pneumonectomy because of very extensive disease, um, but that is a much more morbid and complicated procedure to do. So that I think is is rarer. Um, so I think so the people that really can potentially benefit are people with refractory disease where you think that there is one um, where you're kind of looking at their imaging and for example their symptoms if they're having you know um, unilateral symptoms where you might think oh we think that the the greatest burden of disease is localized to this lobe and if we were to remove it then that would be kind of a better um, step towards really getting source control you still would be treating with antibiotics off before and after that but I think that's that's a group of patients that that can potentially benefit from um, surgery so I think it's people who you think so I think that you, know, you could divide it into people who you think maybe um, there may be curative intent where there's a small amount of disease localized versus people who have probably non-curable disease but maybe with surgery to remove the the greatest burden of disease you give the antibiotic therapy a greater chance to basically have an impact to try to sterilize the lungs as far as possible or for as long as possible if that makes sense so i think it is is important to think about and particularly you know this is this is more relevant actually with more drug resistant organisms so for something like mcanzaso our medical treatment works well that's you know you're much less likely to do that same as you know drug susceptible tb we don't usually reach for surgery but drug-resistant TB, and I would put M, M. abscessus in that category because it's a highly drug-resistant organism, there you might think about if someone has localized disease where actually you, you know they may benefit from surgery. And it's also important to think about when. The timing is really important because you really don't want to wait till they have extensive bilateral disease where you really can't, you know, surgery is not a feasible option. So I think that's something certainly to think about. Um, on the less invasive side, I think airway clearance is important for people with bronchiectasis, which even though your patient's primary lung disease previously diagnosed as COPD rather than bronchiectasis. Sounds like from her CT images she has bronchiectasis and so that's something I think that is amenable to improving through airway clearance using an acapella valve, sometimes a bronchiectasis vest. And this is also you know, an aspect where partnership is really important with your pulmonologist because they can also sort of help guide um, patients um, in partnership with you on that front. Um, and I'll also mention that it's important to think about whether patients have reflux because that's often a driver where people are aspirating NTM and that that's how they're developing or and having recurrent NTM infection because of recurrent aspiration in the setting of reflux. So that's that's really something important to evaluate patients for and I think counsel them regardless because there are a lot of people probably with NTM disease even without symptomatic reflux where it may be a component that is driving their illness. Well I I want to give you a chance to mention anything that you feel like we've left off because we we had a lot of the really big points as far as kind of uh, pivot points for your patients and deciding where to go. But is there anything else for, you know, ID fellows or folks that are taking care of these patients that you think they should know? I like the emphasis on how this it requires a lot of partnerships. <laughs> yes, I think that's probably the most important thing, you know, with the patient as the center, I think is important. Um, so the partnerships, I think, is key. And then also this kind of, it's really longitudinal care um, of patients over, uh, you know, sometimes over years. I've cared for patients for, for years. And so I think that that's important to kind of factor in. And also really, I think, um, you know, I hope that at some point we will have better diagnostic tests and, you know, more rapid sequencing. So, you know, it's something that we should probably, as an ID community, be, be pushing for for these patients 
patients and there is actually now a more active kind of patient-led community um, advocacy on this on this front um, so hopefully we will have better tools with which to diagnose patients but I think in the in the meantime trying to make sure that we do try to get the um, specimens as best we can to, to you know I know if they have a mixed infection or not get the drug susceptibility testing so that you're kind of well informed we didn't talk about you know there are now some newer drugs which is exciting for NTM disease so things like you know clofazamine I mentioned briefly which is not a new drug it's a repurposed drug but also um, bedaquilin and amatocycline and so those um, bedaquilin more for um, for MAC um, amatocycline more used for M abscesses so I think there is are emerging data on those as additional options because you know multiple antibiotics for many months what we're seeing in TB I guess is that they are separate diseases but I, I like to try to apply what we learn in TB because even though TB is neglected there is a lot more data from the TB world um, and what we're seeing is a real push towards shorter regimens and so with more effective drugs and so my hope is is that we'll also have similarly more effective shorter regimens ideally all oral regimens with less toxicities um, to offer patients but in the meantime we've got to, got to kind of help them uh, understand why we're recommending what we recommend and helping kind of guide them through this um, process yeah um well thank you so much for coming we've learned so much we'll have to have you back and talk about some other infections like abscesses <laughs> and Great. dig I'm in delighted. um uh, and so I'll provide on the website a lot of uh, resources about things that we talked about. And um, just thanks again for coming. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you to Kashal and Ravandi for joining us on this episode. As always, I recommend you check out our website, febralpodcast.com, for our post-episode consult notes, which summarizes key points and provides links to articles. In addition to the website, please connect and follow us on Twitter or Instagram so you don't miss any of the graphics that accompany the podcast. Send me any topics you're interested in, awesome ID friends you'd like to feature on future shows, and lastly, I'm always on the lookout for new fellows or trainees who want to join and help create episodes too. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.